So looking back over a year ago, I remember the first Sunday that we did virtual communion. Never thought in my entire life that we would be doing communion in my house, recording it, and then asking others to participate in that, of drinking uh, of the juice that they had and eating some of the bread and, and sharing in the work that God has done through Jesus Christ. So we're preparing for that, and I said to my wife, I said, hey, I really need a communion chalice that will look good on the table to go uh, with the bread plate. And, and, and so she brought out her favorite communion chalice. She had bought it years ago uh, when we lived in Texas, and it, it really is a beautiful piece of art. And, and so we filled it up with the grape juice and, and put the bread on the plate and, and kind of set the table. And it was a very weird thing to, to set a communion table in your house and, and, and break bread and, and drink from the cup, knowing that everyone else was doing it in their own home. And, and it went great. And so I, I was cleaning up and I put the communion chalice in the kitchen sink along with the bread plate and then got distracted and but was going to go back and, and, and clean up the chalice. And all of a sudden, my wife walked into the kitchen and I heard a clank and a clunk. And I heard her say, oh, no. And I said, what happened? And she had not realized that I had put the chalice in the sink. And she had thrown something into the sink and it had hit the chalice and it had fallen over. And so today, it's a little show and tell. So this is what happened to her favorite communion chalice. And I said to her, I mean, surely we can, we can fix this. It doesn't seem like that big of a chip or that big of a break. And she said, no, it can't be fixed. It's broken. I said, well, you're a potter. Like, you know how to fix these things. And she says, once it's gone through that second fire, there's, there's no way it can be restored. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right. I mean, here we are. We're, we're doing communion. We're doing the Lord's work. And, and, and I mistakenly don't clean something up. And, and it's all accidental. There's nothing that was, you know, anyway, it's all. And like, God, this doesn't seem right. It's like, why can't we restore it? Why can't we get it back to what it used to look like? Why does it have to be broken? And what I wanted to do was try and redeem the moment. To take that which was broken and fix it. To restore it. And I have to admit that, that, that that's, that's kind of who I am as a person. I, when people tell me about you know, kind of tragic movies or sad movies and, and that they, they don't end well, I'm like, I, I don't really want to see that. Like, I feel like I have enough sadness and sorrow around me on a regular basis that I want something that's redemptive. I want a story that ends well. I want a story of that which is broken being put back together. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about the reality that the world is broken. The Apostle Paul has talked about that already, that, that the world is decaying, that, that that brokenness and the groaning of the world, it impacts us as well. We live into that world. But we also want to talk about the redemptive work that God does through Jesus Christ. That though we are broken, Christ makes us whole. And so in doing that, we want to turn our attention to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says as we begin to draw to a close on this sermon series 
on Romans chapter 8. Here's what we read. Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So the assumption, the unspoken assumption, although it's been spoken of going through this text in Romans chapter 8, but the unspoken assumption is this, is that bad things are going to happen. That the world is broken, and eventually the world will break us just as that communion chalice was broken. Things happen. The world decays. Our bodies decay. And the assumption that the Apostle Paul makes in this is that bad stuff's going to happen. But he's constantly pushing us to notice redemption, to see the price that Jesus pays in order that we can be restored, in order that we can be redeemed, in order that things can be set right. But the struggle is this, and the struggle is this, is that life's simply not fair. We, we've talked about this before. We all have our bumps. We all hit our bumps. And Shannon and I, on a fairly regular basis, we marvel at the people that we know for whom life is a literal struggle, and yet they maintain the joy of the Lord. That something deep down inside of them allows them to know that God is with them, reminds them that Jesus has been victorious. And we wonder, we, we were like, how do they keep their joy? Well, we see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, God works for good. Bad things happen, and bad things are never good things. But the way in which things work in God's economy is that he is working for good. I love that line in, in The Lord of the Rings where, where the hobbit Sam Gamgee says, does this mean that after the shadow is gone and after the darkness is gone, he says, does this mean all the sad things are going to come untrue? Because he's looking to the future. He's looking to the fulfillment of that redemption. And it's the same thing that we have to do as followers of Jesus, to know that one day all the sad things are going to come untrue because God's promise is that he works for good. But here's the deal, folks. Sometimes you just get, just get tired of crooked paths. And, and the struggle is this, is that in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 13 and 14, we're given some perspective on this. This is Ecclesiastes 7. It says, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. We've talked about this before. We, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what that looks like. We back into the future 
looking to Jesus, though. And, and sometimes, you know what? Don't you get tired of crooked paths? And then Ecclesiastes seems to say that God has actually made the path crooked sometimes. That we want that, long, we want that straight path. We want that easy path. And yet sometimes things veer off to the left or the right or in the place where we want to go, we can't quite get to. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes seems to be saying that sometimes God allows for those things to happen. Sometimes it is on those crooked paths that God actually teaches us some new things. Because if you think about that, when do we learn the most? It's often when we've failed. It's often when we've been broken. It's often when we've run into the brick wall, so to speak. Then when we come to the end of ourselves, God says, now let me teach you. And that's really, I think, what the Ecclesiastes 7 is saying. He's saying, look, whether you're, whether you're having adversity or whether you're having prosperity, it doesn't matter. You've got to trust God and you've got to trust. You have to trust that God is with you in the good and the bad, in the ups and the downs in the days that are filled with sunshine and in the days that are filled with May gray and June gloom. You have to trust God. But it's hard. It's hard when those paths are crooked and we tend to grow weary. Psalm 63 describes a scene that happens in the life of David after his own son Absalom has usurped the throne from David. And you may recall Absalom comes to power in some very strange sorts of ways, and David hasn't been paying attention. And then David literally has to flee for his life because Absalom is taking over the throne. And it's during this time when David is out in the desert, when he's crushed by his own son and what his son has done to him, that we read this. This is Psalm 63. Verses 1 through 4, but I want to read just verse 1 to start with. He says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Have you ever felt like that? Like life brings you to this place where you say, I am in a dry and desolate place. And Lord, I am thirsting for you but there is nothing. There is no water. I'm seeking you, but I'm not finding you. Now, if the psalm just ended there, it'd be hard to reconcile. But then listen to what David says. He remembers, verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory, because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. He says, God, I'm going to remember. I have seen you. I have beheld your glory. Your love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, and I will lift up my hands. There's something about the lifting of our hands in praise and adoration to God that reminds us of whom we belong to. And David says, look, I know it's Gets, we get weary, and I know we get tired, and he's running for his life. And he says, but I remember the faithfulness of God. And this remember, I mean, this, this, this struggle comes to all of us. David is a man after God's own heart, and yet he still has this terrible stuff happen to him. I mean, the rea reality is this, is that we don't always get, as, as followers of Jesus, we don't always get better circumstances 
but we get a better life. Things don't always go our way, but we have the promise that God is with us. But it's still a struggle. And it's hard to see that, and it's hard to trust that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We see only a reflection in the mirror. We see, as I learned it, through, through a glass dimly. And it's the struggle of this is that it's, we can't see it all the time. So um, I went and got some new glasses the other day, and I'm wearing them today in case you are looking at me and thinking, God, what's different about Paul today? It's just new glasses. But here's the reality of, of me or for me when I go and look for, for new glasses. Um, I literally, when I take my glasses off, I really can't see anything. And, and, I, I, and it's funny, every time uh, the woman who cuts my hair, Winnie, when, when she asks me what I think of my haircut, and I've already taken my glasses off, she says, what do you think? I said, hey, it looks great. I can't see anything. I have no idea. I trust you, but I'm sure it looks great. So anyway, so when I go and look for glasses, it, it's a family event. And whoever is at home gets to go with me. And so this last time, uh, Morgan, our daughter, and my wife, Shannon, and I all went to pick out new frames. And, and, and so here's what happens, though. So, like, I'm looking at frames with my, with my old glasses that have the prescription in them, and I can see the frames. But I have no idea what the frames look like on me. And so I'll put on a pair, and they'll say yes or no or yes or no. And, 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 and then we'll start narrowing it down. And then, but I still can't really see what they look like. So, so Morgan in her wisdom says, hey, here's what we'll do. Um, you put on the new frames that, you know, that don't have the prescription in them, and I'll take a picture of you, and you can tell me what you think. Because then I'll put on my regular frames, and I'll be able to somewhat see what I actually look like with the new frames. So hopefully you're, you're following all of that. So Morgan did that, and she took a picture, and I was like, oh, gosh, I look fat in that picture. And then she did it, took it, and I'm like, oh, I don't like those frames at all. Until finally we landed on some frames. But even still, I couldn't really fully tell what they looked like on me because I wasn't looking at them live and in person. And the bottom line is this. I have to trust. I have to trust that my family will make the right decision, that they know what looks good on me, and I need help in order that I can fully see. And, and, I, and I think sometimes when it comes to our faith, that's where we find ourselves as well. We don't see it fully. Our vision is somewhat distorted. And the call of the gospel and the reality of what the Apostle Paul says to us is he says, look, keep looking to Jesus. Trust in him. Keep your eye on him. He's not going to let you down. Verse 30 of our text today. I want you to notice the progression of what happens. Because Paul is building now. He says, those whom he predestined, talking about those, those who have followed Jesus. Those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And it's this crescendo of what is happening. But the problem is this, you and I trip over the word predestined. Because many of us think of predestination as meaning that we've been predestined to hell. 
it's a theological idea of double barrel predestination that has been rampant for years. And a lot of people, even when they think of Presbyterians, they think of predestination that God might damn some people to hell and while God would save others. But what the Apostle Paul is getting at is, he, is he's not taking it from where all the theological language is taken. He's saying God that, that because we have been predestined, it's made because God has set this point in time that God has chosen for you. You've been predestined. You have been chosen. It is a certain thing that has happened. And our problem is we get all wrapped up in a theological conversation around what predestination actually looks like and what a predestined life means. And, and it, it, it can, well, let me tell you how John Calvin put it. I think Calvin does a great job of this. He was the one who kind of started introducing this idea of predestination. But here's his caution. He says, when they inquire into predestination, let them remember that they are penetrating into the recesses of the divine wisdom, where he who rushes forward securely and confidently, instead of satisfying his curiosity, will enter in an inextricable labyrinth. Calvin says, if you keep going with this idea of predestination, you're going to get into a maze and a labyrinth so deep and so far in that you'll never be able to get out. And I think that's a good and cautionary warning. It's also interesting to me that when John Calvin was writing about predestination in, in the, his, his great work, uh, The Theological Institutes that he wrote, which are two books about this thick, um, when he first wrote about predestination, he put it near the front of his institutes. But over time, he moved the chapter on predestination to after his talking about redemption. Because he said, it is only believers who understand the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that are going to see the effects and understand the effects of predestination. And I think that's brilliant because I think that, that, that what it says to me is he's saying, we really don't see the work of predestination until we get to the end of our life. And then we look back. And we can see the providential ways in which the hand of God has been involved in our life, in the good and the bad, in the ups and the downs, in the shadows and in the light. We see the work of God. And to me, that's really helpful. Because what Paul is doing is he doesn't want us to trip over the word predestined. He wants us to see this, this escalation that we are predestined, that we are chosen, that we are justified, that we are made right, and then that we are glorified. And what's interesting is Paul is writing to a church of people, a group of people who are living, but he is saying your glorification has already happened. You are living, but he writes it in the past tense. You have been glorified today. And you see, this is our hope. This is what gives us great encouragement. This is what allows us to have our joy because we have already received God's glorification. So that's why I believe in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we can read what James says in a, in a rather remarkable way because it truly is a confounding statement. Here's what he says, James 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Keep persevering, he's saying. And he's saying, even in the midst of those trials, God's working for good. That's why we can count it all joy, because our joy is not based in our circumstances. When we talk about the people, when Shannon and I have this conversation on the people who seem to have the joy of the Lord, we realize and we recognize that their joy is not based on their, their life. Like their circumstances are not always great. But it is based on the reality of Jesus Christ. And so the encouragement of James is to keep holding on, to keep persevering, to keep clinging to Jesus. To keep holding on to God. And I want to encourage us in that. Because we do have to say that God is working all things for good. For those of us who believe him, he is working all things for good. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. And this is from The Great Divorce. And it connects this idea of glory with joy. I think it does anyway. He says, some mortals say of temporal suffering... No future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Do you catch that? He says, here's what God's work does. It will work backwards and turn even the agony into glory. This is why James can say, can say live with joy. This is why the Apostle Paul says, God's working all things for good. This is why J.R.R. Tolkien, when he wrote The Fellowship of the Rings, had those words of Sam Gamgee said, even the sad things are going to come untrue. Because God in his economy works in a way that we cannot fully fathom. And he turns even the agony into glory. And so let's cling to that. Let me bless you with, with one more word. And this is from John chapter 17, verse 13. And it's the promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. John chapter 17, you may recall Jesus prays for himself, prays for his disciples, then prays for the world. But in the middle of that prayer, he prays for the disciples' joy. And so let me read this to you. Jesus says, I am coming to you now, as he speaks to God. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. May my disciples have the full measure of my joy within them. And friends, that's what I want you to have as well. That if we profess that God is going to work all things for good, it means that though we don't fully understand it, and we may never fully understand it, and we may, may never fathom how all of it works together, we can be assured that Jesus had said, has said, I want you to have my joy. And what a gift that is. Pray with me, please. God, in the midst of the struggles, you were there. In the midst of the crooked paths, you still lead us. When we grow weary and tired, Lord, you call us to turn to you. When we don't see clearly, you remind us to look again to you, to worship you. So encourage us with this word, Lord, that you are with us. 
that you promise to be with us, that you promise to give us your joy. And Lord, may we have a deep-seated joy that is rooted in Jesus, that goes beyond our life's circumstances, a joy that reminds us that we are loved, that we are chosen, that we belong to you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.